that's what this is all about, okay? Mm-hmm. It's about a narcissist losing control over their victim. And when they can no longer control you, um, you know, the only way they have to to get to you, at the, you know, generally at that point, is through the court system. Hey guys, welcome back to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. I'm your host, Jazzy, and today we're talking about post-separation legal abuse and navigating family court with your abuser. Now, this might be the first time I actually re-recorded an introduction, but a lot of things happened this week and I want to talk about it. So obviously, I shared a little bit of my story last month, and since then, a lot of people have said to me, you know, I'm so glad you're out of that relationship. So glad you got away from him and you're safe now and you don't have to deal with that. While part of that is true, I'm here to tell you that the abuse does not stop when you leave. And this was something that I obviously had to learn the hard way, but I've since found out that 90% of domestic violence survivors report experiencing post separation abuse for years or even decades after a relationship ends. And when you have children with your abuser, it's often much worse and can even be directed at the kids. So some examples of post-separation abuse can include economic abuse, so blocking access to bank or credit cards and ruining the survivor's credit, legal abuse, which we'll get into in this episode, stalking, harassments, obviously some things that would be very clearly abuse like threats of violence, intimidation. There are honestly so many different types of post-separation abuse and ways that they can do this. So I would recommend looking it up. I would encourage you to do your own research because you may not even realize that this is happening to you. And like I said, more than 90% of domestic violence survivors experience this. So it was really fitting that this episode was set to come out this week because it has been nonstop for me. I obviously won't get into specifics, but it's very clear that he and his attorney are trying to make me look bad, trying to position him as a victim, which... Obviously, if you've listened to the past few episodes in this series, you know that that's not surprising at all. It just, it doesn't stop and lots of craziness has been happening this week. And then I get on Twitter or X and I see that Kiki Palmer is trending and I'm like, oh gosh, what's going on? So I click on it, obviously, and I'm reading and I see that she has now filed for a domestic violence restraining order against her child's father. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's happened again. And at this point, it definitely never surprises me because statistics show that it's happened to a lot of us, even though we aren't talking about it as often. I feel like, you know, I shared some statistics in the first episode and it's very, very common. And there was a lot of conversation about it. Obviously, a lot of support for Kiki because everyone loves her. And a lot of you know, comments from certain people saying things like, oh, well, we need to see proof. Maybe she's lying. Maybe she's just wanting to use this to get advantage in custody over him or whatever. Again, no one's going to lie about this or I won't say no one, but the vast majority of people are not going to lie about something like this. As Amanda Kippert mentioned, and I believe it was the very first episode, she mentioned that it's very uncommon for domestic violence survivors to lie about this sort of thing, because why would you want to risk, obviously, your safety, your reputation, and all of that for what? Like, this is not the attention that people want. And so I'm going to read a quote, because I um, saw this quote that someone posted, and I was like, yeah, this is 
literally what happens. So it's by at the Cindy Noir. And she said, it's so chilling because when you look at the stats and prevalence of domestic violence and intimate partner violence, that means that there are so many women we come into contact with on a regular basis that are keeping up appearances and doing it well enough that they go unnoticed if you're not paying close enough attention. So just saying that this is kind of happening all around you, whether you realize it or not. And it was actually not funny in a hilarious kind of way, but I was on TikTok later on last night and, you know, TikTok live, people were all talking about this and I was listening to one of them. And there was a guy on there that mentioned that he doesn't know a single person that has ever been assaulted. He doesn't know anyone that's ever been in an abusive relationship. He doesn't think it's that common. And the people on the panel with him were just saying, just because you are not aware of it doesn't mean that it's not happening because trust me, it is probably happening around you. And a lot of people can relate to this. So obviously, I truly hate that Kiki is going through this and I feel for her, but I am happy that there is some visibility and attention being brought to domestic violence right now. Again, I mean, at this point, I feel like we're hearing a story about a celebrity every month, if not more frequently than that. But it is still helping to shed light on this topic. And on top of that, the entire world is witnessing post-separation abuse happening in real time. So as you'll hear in this episode, once an abuser can no longer control you, they'll try to control how other people see you. So as soon as the news dropped last night that Kiki had filed for a protective order, her abuser shared a photo with their son and said he would see him soon. And it was clearly very manipulative and just a shady thing to do. And then his brother made a post about how someone, it was super vague, was the most abusive and manipulative person he's ever encountered, which obviously got people talking about, is he talking about his brother? Is he talking about Kiki? And now I think most people are settling on he's talking about Kiki because he also deleted the post. And her mom has gotten involved talking about how she told his brother that he had been abusive towards her daughter over a year ago. So just everything is put out there in the public eye. And now that the protective order has been granted and Kiki was awarded sole custody with no visitation for her abuser, soon I'm sure you'll hear him talk about how she's keeping his son away from him. He's definitely probably already telling other people that directly, I'm sure, because that's what they all say. So it's just a vicious cycle that survivors know all too well. And it's kind of crazy for me because my story and Kiki's story are actually pretty similar. I mean, we both experienced physical and emotional abuse. Her baby's eight months old. Mine's 10 months old. So like there's so many similarities and it definitely hits close to home. And it's also sad because I know that it's probably going to be a very, very difficult time for her. It's most likely going to get worse over the next few months, maybe even a year or longer before it gets better. Because even with the domestic violence protective order in place, I feel like I have not had a moment of peace since it was filed <laughs> because, of course, they just won't let us rest. So it's most likely going to be a constant fight to protect herself and her baby. So obviously, a lot of people are sending her prayers and wishing her the best, and I absolutely do the same. But I do want to say, like, don't forget that there are so many stories just like it out there of regular people that you aren't hearing about in the news and they may even be people right next to you, your friends, your family. So definitely think about how you're responding to the situation because people are watching you. So with all of that being said, 
let's talk about today's guest. Hope Jay is an attorney and social worker who has devoted her career to advocacy for women and children. Over the last 28 years, she has helped hundreds of families experiencing difficult challenges such as physical and sexual abuse, domestic violence, and mental health and substance abuse issues. Since 2011, the Law Office of Hope RJ PLLC has helped hundreds of clients who have sought her legal expertise in family law matters, and prior to 2011, Hope spent four years at the Erie County District Attorney's Office prosecuting domestic violence and sexual assault crimes. Over the last five years, she began to see a void in the legal system, which has not caught up with the complex issues of emotional and psychological abuse and the effects on victims and children. Most of her clients have suffered from the consequences of an abusive relationship that oftentimes is not physically abusive, yet when they are seeking to divorce, obtain custody, or file for civil orders of protection against their abuser, they encounter many roadblocks. Hope created the Center for Hope to provide people who want to leave their abuser with the legal advocacy, mental health support, financial advisement, and holistic healing that survivors need to help them down the path to freedom from their abuser. You'll learn more about some of the great things that they're doing at the center in this episode. So let's go ahead and get started. Hi, Hope. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this episode. I feel like it was really important to do an episode on, you know, the legal side of things, including post-separation abuse and just how domestic violence survivors can be protected legally. So I'm glad to have you on. Again, I, I, I appreciate you reaching out. And I think it's really important to spread awareness. There's one thing that I want to say, just preface, you know, this, what we're going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. I am an attorney. I am licensed to practice in New York state, but I just want to be clear that anything that we're talking about today is not to be construed as legal advice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Thank for you. sure. We'll get that disclaimer out of the way. <laughs> so do you want to introduce yourself? Tell everyone a little bit about your background and your company? Yes. Thank you. So like I said, I am an attorney. I'm licensed to practice in New York State. I'm a solo practitioner. I've been on, uh, I have my own law practice for the last 15 years. And in the last three years, I recently founded a nonprofit organization called the Center for Hope of Western New York. And at the Center for Hope, we strive to provide awareness and advocacy for survivors of narcissistic abuse. And narcissistic abuse is something that familiarity with narcissistic abuse, I think, is recent. Uh, People understand domestic violence. They understand physical domestic violence. They understand when they see a woman who's been battered that that is domestic violence and that, you know, there's a lot of support out there for for women who have been physically abused. But emotional, psychological, mental abuse is something I think that is often overlooked, um, overlooked in the context of, you know, people having a, a real understanding about what it is. And in the court system, I think it, it's much more problematic for survivors of emotional and psychological abuse to get the support that they need in mm-hmm. the context of contested custody cases and matrimonials, which is, you know, that's what we do at the Center for Hope. We, we work with survivors of, of abuse and we uh, advocate for them. We have uh, people who are in four different quadrants of uh, professional advocacy, uh, attorneys, uh, mental health support. We have coaches and we also have financial uh, people who work with not just women, people who are survivors of this type of abuse because financial abuse is often a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you kind of address all the different aspects of, you know, 
support that someone might need when they're leaving an abusive relationship. So, well, that's, that's kind important. of what we thought of when mm-hmm. we designed our our platform is we wanted to kind of wrap our arm, our arms around survivors and provide them like a one stop shop of professionals who understand the difference between us and, and other professionals in this field is that we all have experience with education in and most of us have been survivors of this type of relationship ourselves. Mm. So we have a ton of empathy for people who are going through something like this and we, we can speak the language. And I think people, you know, who have gone and talked to maybe other attorneys or other counselors and they, they feel like they haven't been understood, they come to us and they're like, oh, my God, finally somebody understands, you know, what I'm going through. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so important to connect with an attorney that actually understands where you're coming from. Yeah. Particularly in cases like this, because like mm-hmm. I said, uh, often other attorneys and the court system doesn't really, they don't really give the, they sh- they, I think that they don't give the same amount of attention to people who are coming out of these kinds of relationships. It's often portrayed as a he said, she said, and mm-hmm. if there isn't evidence like, you know, police reports or you know, medical records, things that support that they have been a victim of physical domestic violence, it's much more difficult to put forward this idea that, yes, I am a survivor of abuse, but Mm -hmm. it's a much more insidious form of abuse. It's narcissistic abuse. Mm -hmm. So I guess I want to start out by talking about domestic violence protective orders. And I know they're called different things in different states. So I'm in North Carolina and they're called domestic violence protective orders. Can we talk a little bit about the legal protections that are available to survivors? Sure. Um, Again, I'm licensed to practice in New York, so I can't speak to any other state. Um, Mm -hmm. But I can talk about how a woman could procure a, we call them here, orders of protection. Other jurisdictions may call them restraining orders or TROs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's kind of the language. There's a number of ways that you can go about securing a order of protection. And you can get it through a criminal case. Uh, if you're going to file criminal charges against against somebody for domestic violence or or, or abuse, I mean, I, again, there's there's different ways to to get this type of an order. But even if you were to go to a civil court uh, here in in Erie County, where where I live, you can go into family court uh, and you can ask for an order of protection by filing a petition uh, in family court. It's called a family offense petition. But in the context of filing that, you still have to plead a criminal statute, right? So mm-hmm. uh, even though the, the burden of proof in a civil court is less than in a criminal court, uh, you still have to, in your pleadings, you have to state that a crime has taken place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you can do that. Like I said, you can do it in family court. You can file charges in a criminal court. And you have to you know go before a judge. And a judge will listen to... Uh, you know, what you have stated either in your pleadings or if it's in a criminal proceeding, the district attorney will do that. And, you know, hopefully you will be granted an order of protection. And there's a couple different types of orders of protection. Again, I'm talking, you know, about what's available in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first type is a full stay away order of protection, meaning that the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator cannot have any contact with you at all. Uh, though that is my favorite order of protection. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> um, because I, I really do think that when women are seeking or or again, I, I fall into pronouns. I don't mean any offense yeah, by that. No um, uh, so I just for anybody that's listening, I, I understand that men are also uh, v- victims of domestic violence. But just for purposes of t- 
talking, I generally mm-hmm. use the, the female pronoun. Okay. I just yeah. want to be clear about that. Yeah. So when, uh, you know, women are, are seeking these types of orders, um, you know, they have to, uh, you know, be very clear about what the allegations are. And if they rise to the level where, um, they're able to convince a court that they're an imminent risk of harm, then they will be granted a full stay away order of protection. And that means that the alleged perpetrator cannot have any contact with them at all. Um, they can't call them. They can't email them. They can't Snapchat them. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't have any contact through third parties. I mean, you you have to understand that they will find generally any kind of way to get 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 to you. Yeah. So you have to kind of cover all those bases. Um, and it, it can be, uh, again, a, a family court, a civil court judge or a criminal court judge can can issue one of these orders. Uh, and if you're in family court or you're in a contest, contested custody case with somebody and one of these orders are issued, there can be carve outs to that so that you can still communicate with the person regarding parenting. Um, a lot of times parenting apps are ordered uh, so that the, the communication is all through a parenting app. I don't know if you're familiar with our family wizard, uh, but that's one that yeah, is used across the, the country. Um, we're allowed yeah, to use. So it's a really great, it's a great way for people who are in these contested custody cases. And if there's orders of protection that are issued, um, I would suggest communicating through a parenting app and having that added to the order. The second type of order of protection is uh, here what we call a number two um, or a non-offensive order of protection, which means that you can still communicate, uh, but there can't be any threatening behavior, any harassing behavior, any behavior that would be construed as any type of a a violation. Uh, Those orders are a little kind of difficult to enforce because, you know, that you're still able to interact with that person. And I, I don't, you know, that's, that's, that's not an order of protection that I would generally advise somebody to, to get. I would try to get the full stay away order. I don't even think that that is an option in North Carolina. I feel like that would be really difficult to even have as a survivor. I prefer no contact at all. No so, contact is yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, you know, it's the safest way to go. Of course, you know, I always tell right. uh, people that orders of protection does not stop bullets, um, does not stop uh, people from, you know, violating those orders. So it's really, mm-hmm. really important if you have obtained an order of protection that if the, um, you know, the perpetrator, the abuser violates that order, violates the conditions of that order in any way that you follow up with that. Um, you know, you inform your attorney, you contact the police, uh, you make sure that, you know, any violation of that order is on record. Um, in, in New York State, a, a person can be arrested for a violation of an order of protection. It's called a criminal contempt uh, proceeding. And, um, you know, these, these guys uh, are, are often dangerous people and they don't respect orders of protection. So it's really important that, you know, if they do violate it, that there are consequences for that violation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely super important. And I know we just mentioned um, Our Family Wizard as an, a way that they can contact you if needed. Are protective orders in New York the same where you can add custody, I guess, temporary custody orders along with that? Yeah. So if like I, I think I briefly mentioned, so if you are in court um, with somebody and oftentimes order of protections kind of go hand in hand with contested custody proceedings because things get mm-hmm. very heated, something happens, an order of protection is issued. OK, here in New York, we actually have a, a single court 
that deals with a lot of those cases. It's called the Integrated Domestic Violence Court. I don't know if you have something like that um, where you live or in other parts of the state, but it's a from where I sit, it's a fantastic uh, courtroom because mm-hmm. um, all of the cases that you know parties may be involved in. So you have a family court case, you have maybe you're going through a divorce, and then there's criminal matters and violations of orders of protection in other courts. So everything's pulled to one court in front of one judge. So not only is it easier for the, for everybody involved because you only have to go to one court appearance as opposed to you know five court appearances all around, but mm-hmm. it's also best for one judge to be presiding over this entire matter because then that judge gets a much better understanding, a much better perspective of mm-hmm. what's going on and can really um, you know have a much better informed understanding of how to handle the cases if they're yeah, being done sense. piecemeal in all different air in all different courts then you know it's different judges different judges perspectives so you know there's a lot of reasons why the integrated domestic violence court makes sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah i like that i know we have a domestic violence courtroom that i went to specifically for the domestic violence protective order but i don't think we have anything like that you know when it comes to custody and child support and all of the other family court issues, I think that's held in a different courtroom. So yeah, Yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that once a survivor leaves an abusive partner, that the abuse stops and that they're in the clear and it's all good. (laughs) I feel like that's what a lot of people thought when they spoke to me, like, thank God you made it out. Like you're okay now. And I'm just like, you guys have no idea. I've also learned that, you know, Post-separation abuse can actually be even worse sometimes than the abuse that people went through, depending on the circumstances. So can you talk a little bit about what post-separation abuse is and what that looks like in the legal system? That's a really important point, and I'm glad that you brought it up. So one of my favorite things to say to people so that they can kind of understand that concept is that once a narcissist can no longer control you, okay, because you've taken the steps to leave, and now mm-hmm. you're in court, they want to control how other people see you, okay? Yeah. So that's, that's what this is all about, okay? Mm-hmm. It's about a narcissist losing control over their victim. And when they can no longer control you, um, you know, the only way they have to, to get to you, at the, you know, generally at that point, is through the court system. So mm-hmm. a lot of times you're going to see these guys, uh, again, I'm sorry for the pronouns, but... This is generally what I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you're going to see these guys using the legal system to continue to attempt to try to control their former partner through the legal system. And that's what we call post-separation legal abuse. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it can manifest in so many different ways. You'll see it um, by you know somebody filing petition after petition after petition in family court you know one you finally get out of it and 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 you think it's resolved and then you get served with another petition you know a month later you know it's a way for them to just continuously keep you off balance to force you to have to see them um to use your generally they use children um as collateral damage they're they're not really that that concerned about how any of this impacts their children they use children as pawns. Uh, they use their children to hurt the other person. Again, their children are something that they they know, um, you know, if they can continue to drag you through the court system, that it's hurting you. So what's more important to them is to continue to hurt you than how all of this is 
impacting their kids. I, mm-hmm. I, that's a really important point that I yeah. think a lot of people miss. As you said, um, sometimes people project their own morality onto these guys. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, they don't they don't play by the same handbook that we do. OK, they're not looking at things the way that you do. They're not at, they're not really concerned about their children's welfare. What they're concerned about is winning. And what they're concerned about is hurting you in the process, right? That's yeah. that's some that makes them happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's it terrible. gives them yeah. a sense of of power. It give, again, you have to understand that these types of relationships are based on power and control. And you know what little you told me, I didn't realize that you'd been in a relationship like this, Jazzy. I'm I'm very sorry to hear that, and very happy that you've gotten out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, but you know that these types of relationships are based on power and control. Right. So that doesn't change. Uh, once you end the relationship, it's just they, you know, the only place that they have to continue to affect this on on you is in the context of court proceedings. So they will drag you, like I said, uh, they, they refuse to settle. They they will put you in a position where you have to go to trial. OK, make you have to rehash all this trauma uh, that you would rather not have to do. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again, that they, you know, mm-hmm. you know, they refuse reasonable settlement agreements. They refuse reasonable plea offers in criminal cases. Uh, you know, they just they just want to continue to stick it to you any way that they can. And, you know, oftentimes they're their own worst enemy because they don't realize that the way that they're behaving, everyone else can see through them, um, mm-hmm. except they, they, they don't that, you know, they have this. Uh, uh, perception of themselves as being, you know, so, uh, a victim, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. everyone else's fault. And yeah. they think if they just keep this up, that somehow the judge and the court system is, is going to see that as well. And, you know, sometimes they're able to convince people of that. But a lot of times I see them, you know, you give them enough rope, they're going to hang themselves. Mm-hmm. So but it does take a huge toll on, on the other party. Right. Because, you know, you want to be done with it. You don't want to have to continue to do this dance with them. You'd like to get off the dance floor. And that's yep. where things like gray rock, um, and, and we can talk a little bit about, about what gray rock is. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know about no. gray rock, but it's a really important tactic um, to use, particularly when you're being dragged through the court system. Um, you have to learn how to use gray rock because unfortunately, these guys understand how to push your buttons. They've been doing it a long time. They, yeah. they, they know your triggers. They know how to upset you. They know how to make you feel that you're, you're off balance. They know how to scare you. Um, they know the things to say to make you feel threatened and to give in because mm-hmm. that's what they've always done. Right. So when they see, you know, you finally finding strength and resistance and pushing back, uh, these are all things that, you know, they, they can't handle. So uh, one important point that I do want to say is because it's, I think it's very important, particularly because October is Domestic Violence Month, is that, you know, women really need to be careful. Um, they need to be cautious when they are leaving men like this. Because when you are leaving an abuser, again, we talk about a relationship being based on power and control. Mm-hmm. When you are leaving an abuser, you are most at risk for physical domestic violence, okay? Even yeah. if there hasn't been physical domestic violence in your relationship previously, you have to understand that they, they feel they're losing control over you and this is a very, very dangerous time in a woman's life when she leaves an abusive relationship. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's really important that you seek an order of protection if you think that you you know you need one or you have, you know, you speak to a lawyer who is well versed in domestic violence and they understand, you know, what they need to do to be able to get you an order of protection. 
you, you go and you have a safety plan, um, you know, speak to a counselor who is educated in domestic violence and, you know, narcissistic abuse if there hasn't been physical domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you make sure that you have all your ducks in a row and everything as much as you can um, before you attempt to leave. Because, you know, women are often harmed and unfortunately sometimes uh, killed and murdered when they're attempting to leave an abusive partner. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's why this is so serious and it is a matter of life and death oftentimes. So yeah, that's why I think this is super important to bring awareness to. What are some common mistakes that survivors make or that they should avoid when it comes to confronting their abuser or dealing with their abuser in family court? I know you just said the abuser will try to kind of get the person to react, you know, try to push their buttons as much as possible. So I can easily see that turning into you know, the victim ended up looking worse in the court system because of the abuse that they're experiencing post-separation. So yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, again, such an important point. And I think that it's very, very hard to see the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of it, as you know, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're very emotionally raw. Um, They are generally... Uh, threatening all kinds of things and because you've been in an abusive relationship and and your you know your self-esteem is shot um you know you, you probably believe that they're capable of of doing these things because you've seen what they're capable of mm-hmm. so their threats are very real to you uh, particularly when they say they're going to destroy you uh they're going to take the kids you're never going to see them again I, you know mm-hmm. um uh, you know, the, my favorite one is that they, they, you know, they're, they're, you know, if I can't have you, no one, no one will, um, yeah. uh, you know, things like that. Like these are, you know, these types of threats are scary mm-hmm. and, um, and should be taken seriously, even though, you know, a lot of times they don't follow through with them, but for the t- one time that they do, <laughs> right. you know, I, 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 you know, I, I take, I always take threats very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I find that when women are coming out of these types of relationships, they have been beaten down um, emotionally. And oftentimes they're kind of, you know, in the worst place in their life because of having endured a relationship like this. Even when there hasn't ever been an episode of physical domestic violence, they have lived in a space where they're constantly walking on eggshells. They're afraid of what they're, you know, what they say is going to trigger some sort of a rage storm or a silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's financial abuse in the relationship, so they don't feel confident about money. They've been told that they can't do it on their own. They can't make it on their own. Um, they're nothing without this person. And, you know, when you're being told this and being treated this way for some months, years on end, you start to believe it. And this mm-hmm. is part of this is part of why a relationship like this takes you know such a toll on people. Is when you co- finally get up the strength to leave, you're completely depleted emotionally. Yeah. And a lot of times, I see women have um, they've lost a lot of weight. Um, they're not eating properly. They've may, they're maybe drinking too much, or they've turned to uh, like drugs like Xanax to to help them with their anxiety. And, you know, these are all things that people just do to cope to get through the day. But unfortunately, when you show up in a fa- in a family court, 
And, you know, generally the abuser is, uh, you know, looks great mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. they're not losing sleep. This is, you know, this is, <laughs> this is fun for them. So they walk into a courtroom and they're dressed well and they're charming and they they seem like they're very well put together. And you walk into a courtroom and you're exhausted and, the, you know, every, the, all the emotional effects of having been in a relationship like this are showing on your face. You're thin, mm-hmm. you're haggard, you're crying because your emotions are right on your, you know, right on the surface. And, and unfortunately the court is going to look at that and make judgments that they shouldn't make. This is mm-hmm. something that is so, it gets me so aggravated because they see you, the victim or the survivor, and you look like a person who's been through a war because you have. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he looks oh, fine, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. they're making judgments based on how somebody's appearing, and that mm-hmm. uh, that is such such an unfair thing to do. Number one, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna you're gonna have you have to face that um, that those kind of judgments off the bat. And number two, you haven't learned how to deflect any of this uh, emotional abuse yet. Okay, mm-hmm. a lot of times. You're still in that space where you haven't learned how to disengage. You know, he knows what to say to get you going and to scare you and to threaten you. And so, you know, one thing and then you're off to the races and then you're mm-hmm. you know, going down a rabbit hole with him again. And, right. you know, that's really one of the reasons why I started Center for Hope is because I really think that women, when they're getting out of a relationship like this, they do need the support of not just their attorney. But yeah. they need mental health support. They mm-hmm. need somebody that can direct them and guide them through how to identify and protect themselves from financial abuse. Mm-hmm. They need, you know, a coach that can help them identify when these things are happening, how to respond to them so that they're not losing themselves in this relationship still mm-hmm. and how to set good boundaries and how to stop being reactive to the abuse. Yeah. So, you know, you come to a place like, I know there are probably, there's not a center for hope or a place like center for hope (laughs) that I'm aware of anywhere else in the country. I'd love Mm -hmm. to take this and bring it across the whole country. That would be Um, nice. You know, that's Mm -hmm. something that I've thought about. I haven't quite figured out how to do that, but to have a model like this where people can come and get all of this type of support. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, we also offer a uh, a narcissistic abuse recovery educational workshop series that I you know I'd love because you don't have to live in New York to participate. Okay. Um, you know you can, we have we have a we have it virtual as well, and the most important piece of it is that we have it fully funded. Um, mm. It's really the only part of you know what we have available to people that isn't doesn't have a cost associated with it. Mm-hmm. We have, you know the money that we have raised for the organization we have put it towards this group. And it's a fantastic group. It will help women uh, understand everything about uh, the, the the narcissist, what narcissistic abuse is. Um, you know, we go through the entire dynamic, um, the cycle of abuse, and give women the tools to understand how to break those bonds, you know, mm-hmm. break that trauma bond, yeah. and how to get stronger and deal with all the things that we're talking about today, post-separation, mm-hmm. legal abuse, and all those kinds of things. So yeah. there's, um, that's just a quick plug for the group. Yeah, we can definitely Uh-oh. link to that in the show notes. Can you just give it, I know we've mentioned that word a couple of times, so for anyone listening who doesn't know what a narcissist is, narcissistic abuse, like doesn't understand what that means, can you just give like a quick overview? Yes. Um, so (laughs) quickly, 
Um, there's a glossary <laughs> of terms on our website, which I think would be very, very helpful. But the quick, quick and dirty explanation is um, a narcissist is a person who is uh, who has, you know, again, we don't diagnose people. Um, that's not what we're doing. But mm-hmm. it, 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 we're more looking at behaviors. OK, so we see a person who is uh, very self-absorbed, who is not able to convey empathy for somebody else's perspective, who doesn't really think the consequences apply to them. OK, um, and you're going to see a lot of emotionally abusive behaviors, tactics that they use to try to control the the partner in the relationship, including things like blame shifting, gaslighting, um, narcissistic projection, um, mm-hmm. a lot of um, emotionally abusive types of tactics that are, you know, that sort of characterize relationships with somebody that has narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. Um, narcissistic abuse is the totality of that. Okay. And there's a cycle that that women go through in these relationships and it generally starts out with something that we call love bombing okay mm-hmm. and that's when you know that's when you first meet the narcissist and they're charming and they've turned it on and you know a lot of times they're they're very handsome and they look successful from the outside and you know they're just kind of pulling you in with all of mm-hmm. their charm and they're making all these promises to you what we call this future faking um, you know they're <laughs> telling you that you're the best thing that ever happened to them uh, these are all things that they use to pull people in. If somebody is telling you that they love you after two weeks, if they're promising a future uh, after they've only known you a month and, you know, calling you their soulmate after they've only known you for three weeks. These are all major red flags, women. Yeah. OK, <laughs> these are all major red flags. And I, I want um, and and men again, you know, there are female narcissists who do use the same sort of tactics to pull people uh, mm-hmm. into these types of relationships. Yeah. Uh, and then it moves into the whole cycle. Uh, the second part of that cycle is what we call devaluation. And that's when all of, you know, the you're the greatest thing ever starts turning into you can never do anything right. <laughs> OK. Mm. And it's a shift from, yeah. uh, you know, this this love bombing that you experienced in the beginning or idealization is another word mm-hmm. for it. And all of a sudden you're being criticized for everything. OK. Yeah. And uh, and then you wonder what happened to that wonderful, charming person that I met and mm-hmm. how do I get them back? OK, yeah. Yeah. so that's kind of how people stay in a relationship like this, because they start blaming themselves. Mm-hmm. What did I do wrong? Why doesn't he or she love me anymore? What can I do differently to please them? And the reality is nothing, because no matter what you do, um, everything's going to be your fault because you're in a relationship with somebody who cannot take any accountability or responsibility for their behavior. Mm-hmm. And then the last part of that cycle is something that we call the discard, right? And that's when either they just drop you like a hot potato or, you know, they're having a relationship with somebody else. Um, that's very, very common. You know, narcissists need what we call narcissistic supply. So they generally always have one or two backups. Uh, <laughs> you don't yeah. realize this because you, you're in love, but they don't really bond. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, they may seem like they're in love with you, but these are these are people who are disordered, and they don't really have the capacity to bond the way we bond. So when they leave you, it's it's generally very uh, unceremonious. They drop you, uh, but then you know they they generally try to come back. It's called the Hoover, right? Because mm. they don't want to let go of somebody that they have groomed uh, to provide narcissistic supply. So it's a very insidious type of yeah. thing. You don't see it when you're in it. Most of us don't. It mm-hmm. isn't until we get some distance and some space right. and you know go no contact, no contact, and then are able to disengage, break that trauma bond, and then you kind of see, wow. 
you know, this, yeah. I can't believe that I was in this relationship. Exactly. I can't believe yeah. I put up with this for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a learning curve. Um, and we, we provide all of that education in our narcissistic abuse recovery educational workshop series. Yeah. Okay. Which, yeah, I would encourage everyone to go check out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually crazy when you kind of step back and you get to that place where you can reflect on the relationship and see all of these signs. And it's just like, wow, it was so <laughs> clearly that, like right? that cycle. But you don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. You're not looking yeah. for it. You don't exactly. know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which hopefully now with us sharing this, maybe people will think about their relationship and say, okay, I'm starting to see a little bit of this cycle happening yeah. in my own relationship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you kind of, like I said, there's a lot of red flags. We actually have a quiz on our website um, that you can go to if you think you might be in a relationship like this. Mm. And uh, you can kind of go through and take that quiz. And it, it's very, very illuminating, I think, for okay. people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah. I'll make sure we link to everything in the show notes for for people okay. to check out. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that overview. I thought that was important just to, you know, make sure everyone's on the same page of what you mean when you say narcissistic abuse. Yeah. So back to navigating court. So I know you have some experience as a prosecutor as well, right? So I'm yes. wondering if, you know, preparation, like, how victims and survivors can prepare themselves basically for family court versus criminal court. Like if there's any differences in that, if there's any, any nuances that people should be aware of when navigating both of those, um, cause I think yes. they're very different, but I don't really know. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, it, it, I think it depends on the type of case, mm-hmm. you know, it really does. Um, if you're in a criminal proceeding, you're going to be working with, you know, the, here in New York state, it's the district attorney. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, you know, a lot of times there's a domestic violence advocate that you're going to be working with. You're going to be working with the the police. So, you know, it's here, we have something called the the family justice center. Um, I believe that they, uh, family justice centers are are all across the country Mm -hmm. and they're a really, really important resource for people who are going through a criminal matter with a, you know, an abuser. Because they do a lot of things that help prepare a criminal case to be prosecuted. And that's what's most important for prosecutors is that we have enough evidence to get a conviction, right? We, mm-hmm. want, we want to get convictions for you. That's, that's our job. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it's not as easy as you think it might be because we have to put evidence before the court. And family justice, the Family Justice Center does a really, really great job of, um, they do something called body mapping. So they have, uh, you know, nurses that are available that can take photographs of, you know, bruises and other things so that those are fresh um, and, you know, available for prosecutors when we need to, to put test, you know, to need to put evidence before the judge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you're in a criminal case, it's a kind of a different path because you're, you're trying to get a conviction um, you know, you want, you want, you want a, this person to, you know, either, you know, go to jail mm-hmm. or, you know, be on probation or something where they're, you're going to be protected from that person through the criminal justice system, right? right. Mm-hmm. In family court, that, that's not, that's not the game. That's not the aim generally. The aim, you're usually in family court on a custody proceeding and, and you're attempting to get custody, you know, sole custody of your children. So, that's a whole different, it's, it's a different proceeding. You're going to prepare for that differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I would tell people who are going to court 
with an abuser. They've been in an abusive relationship, whether it's physically abusive, emotionally abusive, some combination of both. And they're getting ready to leave and they want to go for custody of their kids. You want to find a family court attorney that has experience in domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's really important that you find somebody who understands these dynamics and that can advocate for you in the context of a custody proceeding, because there's a lot that goes into that as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you're experienced and you understand that and you know what you need to put in petitions and in pleadings and all this kind of stuff, and you understand what you need to do. Sometimes I have to start out cases applying for an order of protection because I've been doing this so long. I know what I need to do. Mm-hmm. If there's so, if you go to a lawyer who doesn't really understand these dynamics, they may not. Number one, they're not going to see it. Number yeah. two, they're they're not going to know exactly what they need to do to get that order of protection. Mm-hmm. So when you're interviewing attorneys, you really need to talk to them. You know, you, how, what's your experience and have you represented a lot of, again, women, I say women, going mm-hmm. through these types of things and, and, you know, how do you feel about and ask them, you know, you can interview lots of different lawyers. You don't have to go with the first lawyer mm-hmm. that you interview. So. Yeah. Just like anything else, I think you need to talk to your attorney, make sure you feel comfortable with that person, make sure that you feel like they they understand where you're coming from, that they're going to be available to, you know, kind of work through this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, you go with the person that you feel that you can trust. Yeah. Um, when you're in court, I started talking about some of the you know disadvantages of having been in a relationship like this and how you might be viewed by the judge or by the attorney that's assigned to represent your kids. So there's a lot that has to be done to correct that. Mm -hmm. And a good lawyer who understands these dynamics will do everything that they can to correct that. But things that you can do when you're in a proceeding like this is, you know, you want to get all of your records together. You know, anything that you think might help your attorney from text messages to social media posts to if this is a financial case, you want to get all the financial records together. And if Mm -hmm. you don't know what those are or don't have access to those, you want to be sure that you find a lawyer who is going to be able to help you get access to those and Mm -hmm. and will lead you, you know, guide you down the right path so that you're able to get access to those things. Mm -hmm. And how you interact with the abuser is crucial. It's critical because if you continue to have these sparring matches, let's say, okay, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're they're texting you, they get you going and then you text them back and then it's, you know, all this stuff, it's pages and pages of them saying something and you responding and par- this is stuff that could potentially go before a court. So the thing that I tell everyone is Stop. Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> Don't <advice>. do it. <laughs> Don't respond. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be in court, you need to consider yourself that like you're in a fishbowl and everything that you say and do can potentially be evidence at some point later on down the road. So you need to start behaving like that. Mm-hmm. So you need to stop posting anything on social media. Don't post anything about this case, about your ex, about your kids related to the case. You want to keep that social media as clean as possible. Okay. The same thing goes for emails, 
text messages, anything that you say in anger or whatever is going to potentially come back and be something that's going to go before the court. So Mm -hmm. be very, very careful and very conscious of that. Gray Rock, I talked about it earlier, but it is so, so important. So Gray Rock is something that we teach people, okay? Mm -hmm. And again, it's, you know, my, everyone at my organization or who who participates in my organization, we all understand these things because we've been doing this and we've educated ourselves and we can help other people. Mm -hmm. Gray Rock is a really important tactic when dealing with abusers because, they're going to try to get a rise out of you. It's what they do. They're getting narcissistic supply, whether you're saying they're wonderful or whether you're crying on your knees, okay? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you're doing as long as you're giving them an emotional reaction because that in itself is the narcissistic yeah. supply. It continues to allow them to know and believe that they are important. They are powerful. Look at I can make her cry. Look at how important I am still in her life. Okay. So they get off on Mm -hmm. that. We don't want to give them an emotional reaction ever. And that's what gray rock is. Mm -hmm. Gray. Think of yourself literally as a gray rock. (laughs) Okay. That's why it's called gray rock. (laughs) And when they attempt to initiate those kinds of interactions with you, you just stop them cold. You don't respond. And if you need to respond about something regarding the health, welfare, or education of your children, then you respond factually with one word or one sentence. And if they keep going and they want to talk about other things or Mm. demean you or harass you or accuse you of things, you don't ignore them. You ignore them. I know it's a really difficult thing for people. Believe me, I know. It's a Mm -hmm. really hard thing for people to learn that it's the best thing that you can do with a narcissist is not respond. And I know it's so hard because you don't want to feel like they got the last word and that that word was also abusive or trying to be intimidating or whatever. You know, we know the strategy behind whatever they're saying. So it's hard to stay quiet for sure. It's very hard, and I recognize how hard mm-hmm. it is, but the power that you have, and this is another thing that I tell people, the only power that these men continue to have over them is the power you give them. Mm. You take your power back by refusing to engage. I know it sounds counterintuitive at first, but as you get the hang of it, it becomes... You, start to feel more and more powerful because you're not participating in the game anymore. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're stepping off the dance floor. Okay. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You mentioned like using our family wizard. Are there any other tips you have for, you know, communicating with an abuser? You know, if you don't have an app like that, would you recommend email only? Would you recommend all text, never doing a phone call? Like, yeah, what would you say there? All of the above, yeah. Okay. Um, everything in writing. Everything mm-hmm. in writing. You don't want to give them an opportunity to say you said something that you didn't say or twist your words. or And also it protects you, too, because you don't want them coming to your house and having a confrontation there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
calling you on the phone, all that kind of stuff is yeah. not advisable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a great way to communicate with somebody like this. You got, you want to lock it down. Yeah. When I, when I work with people drafting, a, you know, settlement agreements, I spend a lot of time asking a lot of questions about how did you previously communicate? Mm-hmm. And then I figure out how to lock it down yeah. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> so that your interaction with that person is minimal to none. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I know you've mentioned yeah. settlement. It sounds like, and I think I heard this on one of your podcast episodes, that settlement is probably in the best interest of the survivor versus going to trial. What would you say about settlements? And then, you know, what things should people be considering putting into their parenting agreements specifically? Yeah. So settlement is only as good as the other side <laughs> also agreeing to settle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if the if you're dealing with a narcissist or somebody with narcissistic traits on the other side, as I mentioned earlier, with the post-separation legal abuse, oftentimes they're not going to be reasonable because why? Why be reasonable? Mm-hmm. It's not about what's in the children's best interests. It's about them winning. And it's very difficult to reason with somebody in that mindset. You're not, you're not playing on the same board. Mm -hmm. So attempting to work out a reasonable agreement, I definitely will do that. I don't think mediation is appropriate in these types of situations, again, because of power and control. In Mm -hmm. where I live here, mediators generally will not work with parties when there are orders of protection. Because right there off the bat, it's showing them that there's an issue of power and control in this relationship. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's not a fair playing field. Yeah. So they won't even work with parties when there is an order of protection in effect, which I think is a smart, is smart practice. Mm -hmm. Some private mediators might, but again, I... I don't think mediation is generally successful because you're not working to the middle. Right. You're not, you're not, that's not their goal. Mm -hmm. And, and oftentimes I think you're going to get taken advantage of if you've been in a relationship that's been characterized by power and control and you're afraid to stand up for yourself, they're just going to run roughshod over you in mediation. So Mm -hmm. that's my two cents on mediation. I think mediation is great in any other circumstance than when you're dealing with an abuser. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. A settlement agreement is always my goal. I do think that it's much better for children when their parents are the ones making the decisions about custody schedules mm-hmm. and how their time's going to be shared and what that's going to look like rather than leaving it up to a judge uh, who doesn't really know you. Um, they're going to hear testimony during a trial and then they're going to make a decision based on that. Yeah. So clearly the parents who know the children and understand what they need, it makes sense in my mind that they should be the ones making those decisions. So if you are able to reach a, a parenting agreement, a settlement agreement with somebody with these kinds of traits, then fantastic. That's great. Mm-hmm. The kinds of things that I recommend 
to people to have in those agreements, it's like I said earlier, you want to lock it down. <laughs> you don't want any loosey-goosey stuff in these agreements because mm-hmm. you give someone, someone like this an inch, they take a mile. We already know this. And if there's not, if it's not very clear and directed mm-hmm. with structure and boundaries, they're going to push it. They're going to change it. They're going to manipulate it. They're going to run roughshod over you. Yeah. And you're not going to have any recourse to take them back to court on like a violation. So for example, something that I would never, ever do in a, a case like this is to settle with something, you know, visitation that's agreed and arranged. No, <laughs> you can't agree, you can't arrange, not with somebody like this. So you need to have a schedule, a set schedule with pickup and drop off times that are clear, all exchanges need to be either at school or not. If not at school, they need to be curbside, meaning no interaction between parents if possible. Holiday schedules need to be clear. Vacation access needs to be clear. Parenting apps are fantastic. Okay, mm-hmm. they're great. As somebody who deals in these high conflict cases every day, I say parenting app all the way. Okay, mm-hmm. our family wizard obviously is the best. It's also the most expensive. So yeah. it's definitely a deterrent for a lot of people because they don't want to have to pay the, I think it's $99 a year mm-hmm. uh, for each per, each party, right? So you have to pay it and then the, the father ha- has to also pay. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a cost. Uh, I think it's worth every penny. Uh, there are also free parenting apps. The, the one that I'm most familiar with is called App Close. And it's one that I do use with families who cannot afford mm-hmm. the uh, cost of our family wizard. It does... Essentially the same thing, but doesn't have nearly as many, you know, bells and whistles as our family wizard. Okay. But the, the benefits of having a or using a parenting app, in my opinion, outweigh, you know, any of the complaints that I've heard. And, mm-hmm. and the most important thing about what's in a parenting app is that once somebody puts something in there, it can't be changed. It can't be deleted. So mm-hmm. it's really a live transcript of all communication. between you and this high conflict person that when you go back into court, which you most certainly will (laughs) at some point, uh, it's going to help your attorney. So I, you know, parenting apps protect you. Yeah. So I know you mentioned, you know, having drop-offs at school versus, you know, meeting them at their house. What about other people getting involved? And I've seen this in different, you know, support groups I'm in, whether that's step parents and that sort of thing. Do you factor that into your parenting agreements at all? Yeah. I have found that involving third parties cause nothing but trouble. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing but trouble. Um, There are other options if you can't do curbside. Mm -hmm. Uh, In really, really high conflict cases, we do exchanges at police stations. There's also supervised exchanges. Uh, Some social services agencies provide super, you know, supervision for mm-hmm. exchanges. There is a cost associated with that too, uh, generally. So I don't know how well that works for a lot of people, but it, but there, that is an option. Mm-hmm. Another option is exchanges in a public place. You can do it. Uh, sometimes people do it in a parking lot of like a Burger King or something like that. Yeah. Or Tim Hortons, a lot of people, I do it. So, so the benefits of that is having other people around. Bringing a third party to exchanges generally only ever results in problems. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a fights between, you know, if you say I'm going to have the 
my new boyfriend come and then he has his new girlfriend come and then there's a melee <laughs> yeah, in the parking lot. One. So yeah. <laughs> I say no to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else related to this topic that you think would be important to mention? I know we've covered a lot. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I can talk about this forever. Uh, as you know, I do. We do have a podcast uh, yeah. called The Narcissist Slayers uh, on Spotify, and I think you can find it on other platforms. If this is something that interests you, you know, anybody that's listening to this, please find us. We go through, you know, every possible topic that you can think of, and, and we're continuing to always explore new topics related to narcissistic abuse on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, again, like I said, I, there's, there's just a lot that that we could talk about, but in terms of, I think we hit a lot of the highlights as far as post-separation legal abuse and kind of getting ready for court appearances and and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was super helpful and I think it's a good way to wrap up what we're doing for domestic violence awareness month. And it'll help a lot of people who are in this situation, which unfortunately is a lot of people. It's a so. lot of people. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is. And if I can make one more plug for yeah. the Center for Hope, I, I don't know, you know, who who all listens to your podcast. I think you mentioned earlier that this is kind of off topic for you. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> uh, is. Generally, you're not focusing on these issues. But if, if anyone has any, you know, interest in this topic or, you know, feels like they want to support our organization, we are a 501c3 not-for-profit and you can uh, donate to our not-for-profit. Again, you can find us online, centerforhopewny.org, and you can donate right there. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're everywhere, centerforhopewny.org. And you know, any donation, large or small, we would definitely appreciate. Again, as I said, we are using it to fund our support group for people who are trying to leave these relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and also for all the work that you're doing in this space. It is greatly appreciated. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, I'd love if you subscribed and left us a review. Another way to support the podcast is to take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at First Hustle Then Brunch so I can repost it. Thank you so much for supporting the show and I'll see you in the next episode.